There are plenty of theories about how learning occurs. Today, our guest, Dr. Josh Eiler, talks about biology, the brain, and learning. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, episode 16. Today I am joined by Dr. Josh Eiler. And Josh, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks very much. Good to be here. I am going to do my best at giving justice to your experience in higher ed. I know you got your PhD in medieval studies from the University of Connecticut in 2006. You spent some time at Columbus State University as an assistant professor in the English department. And then from what I have read and heard as we talked, you, you got a tug. <laughs> you got a tug to <laughs> move right. in a, di- <laughs> a different direction. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that move and the tug that you felt to go in a different direction from a traditional academic professor track? Sure, absolutely. I had actually, as a graduate student, read Ken Bain's wonderful book, What the Best College Teachers Do. And uh, it sort of opened my eyes to the fact that there was a larger field of faculty development and groups of individuals who worked with people on their teaching and had made it a goal for myself once I, uh, once I got tenure that this was something that I wanted to pursue. And so when that happened, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, get the opportunity to move to George Mason University in Virginia and uh, take the role of associate director of their Center for Teaching and Faculty Excellence, and most recently have landed at Rice University, where I'm the director of the Center for Teaching Excellence. And you want to talk a little bit also about some of the other eclectic interests that you have in addition to teaching and learning? Sure. Um a lot of my research and literature has been on Chaucer and other medieval authors, but I'm also uh, very interested in the field of disability studies and have done some writing on representations of disability in medieval literature, even modern children's literature. So uh, it, eclectic is a good way to describe it, I think, uh, in addition to my focus on teaching and learning, but I, in an interesting way, I see it all as informing, that all of it informs the rest. Tell me a little bit about how you see teaching and learning as a scientific enterprise. Yes, this is the key, I think. Um, I think a lot of times we use a lot of metaphors to talk about teaching, and in many respects, uh, you'll often hear teaching described as an art or uh, or the teaching as a natural gift. And I think it, those have merit to some degree, but uh, I think that seeing teaching as a science, because learning is something that is rooted in our biological mechanisms, our, our, our brain, our cognitive activities, our cognitive processes, is, uh, allows us to create a model of teaching where everyone can improve. Everyone can become a good teacher 
by implementing certain principles that are rooted in science uh, and the biology of learning. So, um, in other words, there are there are ways to improve. There are ways to become a, a better teacher as long as we know uh, how how human beings learn and we're willing to put those into practice through the lens of our own discipline and always, I, I try and emphasize this, always kind of paired with a genuine empathy for students and an interest in uh, their development as learners. Today, we're going to talk a little bit broadly about two overarching theories of learning. There are many more than what we're going to discuss today, but but specifically two that have rattled around in your research a lot recently are brain-based learning and then the more broad biological theories of learning. So let's start mm-hmm. with the brain-based learning theory and what works about that and what started to break down as you researched it and, and have grappled with that. Brain-based learning theories, they've gone by a variety of names, but really over the last few decades and primarily in K-12 research, they've been focused on how we can take information from the cognitive sciences, neuroscience and cognitive psychology, and apply it to uh, our work in education. And some amazingly important discoveries have, have been made, I think, a lot of uh, a lot of fundamental uh, concepts about the brain and the ways we can use those concepts to design better courses have been have been really influential. One of the things that happened early on was a gulf uh, kind of was sort of created between uh, scientists and educational researchers in that some uh, some of the early work was kind of criticized for in some cases cherry picking results from neuroscience and so that made scientists wary of of having uh, their their findings applied to education. And so, in so in some sense, what what is called brain based learning, I I just find just a little bit too limiting, both in that sense and in the sense that it looks primarily at neuroscience and and cognitive psychology. I also, to some degree, new fads like using like. Kind of popularized games to expand your cognitive capabilities use brain-based learning theories as their hook to be able to sell mm-hmm. uh, sell their product to people. And so I see the I see the term kind of loaded. I mean, I had been using it for for a long time, but then a few weeks ago, was having a discussion on Twitter with. Uh, Someone from the University of Minnesota named Christina Peterson, and she she was we were just talking about how the biological basis of learning may be uh, a more appropriate kind of phrasing for what we're actually interested in getting from mm-hmm. uh, the scientific material. Let's shift now into that part of the conversation. Then, if brain-based learning is too limiting, and some of the things I've read too that are critical of, of just purely relying on that is that we don't know enough. We're still discovering right. about the brain. So we can't entirely rest all of our teaching approaches on something that we're still discovering. So let's talk right. about your shift then to this broader way of looking at learning. Sure. And I, I think that that's a very important criticism that's been made of it, that uh, we are Still, we're still learning so much about the brain and the the research. Some of it's in early phases and things like that. I do sometimes think, though, that people might take that too far because there are things that we know 
for certain about the brain. For example, that when we learn something, the brain changes. Mm-hmm. And I, I doubt we could find a neuroscientist who would who would deny that. And so I think being able to separate what's in the early stages from what has been proven and that we can apply. There's a, a really wonderful book called The New Science of Lear- Teaching and Learning by Tracy Takahama Espinoza. And she has a whole list in there, did an exhaustive study of what is known and what is more of a myth. That's a really important criticism. To anyone who is listening and thinking, where's my pen? (laughs) I will have all, (laughs) anything that is mentioned by Josh on the show and by me, I'll have all of the links in the show notes. And I'll talk about how to find those at the end of the episode. But relax, you can set down your pen and (laughs) keep listening. I'll (laughs) capture all of these links as we go. So tell us about the biological basis. Sure, sure. So one of the reasons then I, I think it's important to go a bit broader is not that we don't have anything else to learn from neuroscience, but that it would help to bolster what we are learning from neuroscience if we expanded our the breadth of our understanding from from neuroscience to also include things like evolutionary biology and and human development. Expanding that allows us to kind of expand the biology from simply the brain to more of more of a holistic concept of, of human biology and how it applies to learning. I think it also provides important context for anything that we are learning and in some ways allows us to create kind of a a robust framework for being able to decide what is valuable, what can we learn from and apply to education and what, what still needs to be developed. Can you talk a bit about your journey as a teacher and of course now a teacher of faculty in terms of how this learning theory has impacted your approach to teaching? Yes, absolutely. Well, one thing it has not done is uh, I, I don't see students as, uh, you know, subjects of experiments or <laughs> anything like that. And I think that's another criticism that, that uh, people have levied against it. And I think using it in that way uh, is is detrimental to, a, to our larger goals. But I have found that understanding teaching and learning as a kind of as a science and presenting the scholarly approach to it and in fact the scientific data that we can bring to it has really has really created a bridge from some of the anecdotal accounts that you might find about teaching to discussing teaching in a way that really makes sense for faculty. Mm-hmm. You know, all the faculty I work with are and have always worked with are our scholars in their disciplines and so talking about teaching in a scholarly way, talking about it in a scientific way has really allowed or helped to talk about teaching in ways that make improving what we do in the classroom and creating better environments for student learning a reality. Let's look at that a little bit further because I think sometimes people who haven't studied much in this field may interpret the scientific aspects of it to something we can make quantitative that causes a lot of frustration for faculty. And that's the student evaluations at the end of the semester. <laughs> so let's, right. can we talk about, cause that, that of course has tons of flaws and that would take a lot of time to go into, but where does the scientific approach come in and how is that then different than those course evaluations at the end? Sure. Well, I, I'll give kind of a, a concrete example that I tend to talk a lot about. One of those topics is the issue of prior knowledge. And all of us are interested in finding out what our students know when Mm -hmm. they come into class, what their prior knowledge is, how to assess 
what's strong about that prior knowledge and what might what might be incorrect or weaker. Some educational research talks about it as mental models. Some use more anecdotal approaches, but coming at it from a, a scientific perspective, I found has been really useful and that the, the faculty with whom I work have, have really latched onto the notion that prior knowledge, which is what a lot of the cognitive research on education has shown, that prior knowledge is actually a, a, a biological construct, right? That knowledge is made up of networks of neurons and that it is fixed and it is an actual structure so that we cannot change the prior knowledge that our students come in with. If, if they come in with incorrect information, Alexander Hamilton was a president, for example, right? They come in with that. We can't change it. We can only build on it and create an environment in which that knowledge would fail in order for them to then build new knowledge on top of that. Mm-hmm. An easy example I, I use is the bowling ball and the feather experiment in physics that mm-hmm. students come into classes with prior knowledge that heavier things fall faster than lighter things. And the idea that in a vacuum that that would not be true can sometimes conflict with the prior knowledge that's already established. So telling a student that's wrong a hundred times will still not change the fact that that knowledge already exists. And so showing a YouTube video of the experiment in action is one way to create an environment that will build upon that weak prior knowledge and and create something that is more uh, that, that is not only correct but more substantial. Tell me how about how it would enter in then with something that's more complex that scholars would see the truth from much different paradigms. So how do we teach our students in more of the humanities more of an area of great complexity and great debate. In some cases, well, in many cases there, what what's happening is not, inc- or weak prior knowledge, but uh, the necessity to build networks of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things we know about the brain is that it, it prizes novelty. Those kinds of questions are the exact questions that we want to be asking of students rather than more rote memorization-based questions. Mm-hmm. So that's the, I think that's the first important premise there. The sorts of big issues that even scholars wrestle with, I think one of the things we need to keep in mind there is in presenting multiple perspectives on an issue, you are then allowing students to wrestle with the difficult material in such a way that they are building knowledge that is useful for interpreting similar situations later on, if that makes sense. So you're, you're creating an increasingly complex network of knowledge as opposed to isolated, uh, isolated kind of unique modes of knowledge. Yeah, I was thinking about the other day I was teaching, I teach an intro to business class. And so mm-hmm. They're just being asked pretty simple in a, a format, being able to distinguish in this particular case of what we were reviewing, distinguishing natural resources from capital. And mm-hmm. they needed to understand that natural resources are things like, like land and oil. And, and so this guy says, but isn't land also capital? Because if I own land, it's worth something. And I thought, oh, gosh, <laughs> it was one of those situations where for some of the people in the class, they're just building a vocabulary that's completely new, new to them. They've never right. taken a business class before. Maybe they're a 
English major who just got told, or a lot of actually, a lot of times the the students who are studying to be physical therapists, then they mm-hmm. come and the the professor says, you just need to take one business class to know this entire field, of course, because you're going to get that in one class. And anyway, right. I thought it was so funny just teaching so many different levels of students that co- all come in with such vastly different prior knowledge. It's a yeah. fun a fun challenge to have, and that was a time where I felt a bit. I stumbled because I thought, well, <laughs> yes, but some of the people aren't ready to go there yet. They're, they don't even know what capital means yet. At any rate, it's, it's just a fun challenge as educators, I think, to be dealing with this prior knowledge and how important that is. Definitely. And a lot of great suggestions in other branches of the scholarship of teaching and learning on how to assess that prior knowledge, how to, uh, how to design assignments that will, will allow people to reach uh, students of uh, no matter where they're coming in. And so it is, I, I, I agree with you. I think that is the great challenge and one of the wonderful challenges of being a teacher. Would you share with us about a time that you recall having a failure as a teacher that then shifted your thinking about how we learn, how our students learn? Well, you know, some of it was prior knowledge because I do teach uh, about the Middle Ages. And mm-hmm. so students bring in all kinds of uh, ideas about knights in shining armor and dragons and damsels in distress and things like that. I've learned to talk about, to, to, to just have a discussion with them about on the very first day so that we can then build from there, you know, continually assess the blueprint as we're going through. So but didn't always know that, especially as a, a newer teacher, assumed that you know, people talk about the, the expert blind spot and assuming that students were coming in with the same frame of reference of the Middle Ages as I had. That was, that was an important shift that I made early in my career as a teacher, for sure. You work now a lot with new professors or people that are finding newfound focus on their own teaching. And so if you were starting to talk to someone about, hey, they're just beginning down a path toward teaching more effectively with biological learning at the forefront, what would be some steps that they could take to get started? There are some really good, there's some really good books out there. Um, And some of the, some of the works that they would, that you'd want to look at would be under the rubric of mind, brain, and education. In fact, Harvard's Graduate School of Education has a new graduate program in mind, brain, and education, which pulls together neuroscience, cognitive psychology, and even even some developmental psychology as well. And that's a that's a great place to go to just get a sense of what is happening, what is going on. And then the actually the book that really changed the way I started thinking about these things was called The Art of Changing the Brain by James Zoll. He was one of the first in, in the realm of higher education to to talk about how neuroscience can have an impact on the way we see teaching. As, as I've gone on, I have uh, some disagreements with that book, but it has been really influential with shaping, I think, the way we think about the college classroom and the science of learning. In terms of being a new teacher, when you're confronted with all sorts of different things that are new and challenging, I think both of those places offer really easy, uh, quick access into okay, how do I use how do I how do I use this information about prior knowledge to to help with my class? And one of the areas I'm really interested in and the emotional brain and the emotional responses that that we have and and 
what am I seeing happening in my class and what might that mean if I better understand how human beings learn and the biology of that learning. What have I not asked you about these theories of learning that are important for someone to understand? It's still, well, you did ask about this, but it's, it's worth, <laughs> <laughs> worth underscoring that sure. it's still in development. I mean, we, we, have, we have lots more questions than we have answers. But what I find so exciting and powerful is that we're starting to ask different kinds of questions now, which is, you know, what, how, how can this material be useful for understanding education? Not that all of it will be or that even most of it will be, but what can we find in science that will help us bridge the gap of what we know and what we don't know to be helpful as teachers? One thing I've discovered from talking to you today and also reading a lot of what you post on Twitter and your articles and blogs is that at the heart of all of this, and I'm not sure, I feel like it has been there, but I'd love if you would just touch a little bit on your orientation toward the student and talking about if we could spend just a couple minutes about your analogy of what separates us from our students, nothing but a breath, a comma. And I will link to this post because I'm sure we won't be able to do it justice in a couple minutes. But I do think it speaks to your, your real spirit of just serving our students and not having there be this great distance between us. So would you share a little bit about that? Because I think it does inform a lot of your work. Sure, absolutely. And that um I do think that there are traditional notions of classrooms that uh that set up our work as hierarchies and I would like to see those break down because I honestly think that we learn a lot from our students as teachers. And I see, you know, I've wanted to be a teacher since I was five years old and uh part of part of that desire, I think, was because it is, I, I consider it to be not just one of the most challenging professions, but one of the most deeply felt personal uh, personal professions as well. And so in a conference paper I gave just in May, I, I, I was, I've always been drawn to the play Wit by Margaret Edson, and there's a scene in there where one of the professors is, is making a comparison to, to life and a, a comma and saying how, how thinly we are actually separated from, from any other part of the world. And, and I really do see that metaphor, the idea of a comma that, that Edson brings up as being especially powerful for our work in the classroom, that student, teacher, learners, not much really separates us. And if we actually approach our material and our, our work as, as teachers in a more unified way that, that all of us in the classroom are working together towards a common goal that, that we can actually, t- we can really uh, move education forward in really powerful ways. There was a video circulating around Twitter and different places that had some professors from lots of different institutions reading aloud their evaluations from students and poking mm-hmm. a lot of fun. And I will confess to finding it quite hysterical. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure if I pressed play right now, I would chuckle once again and just the, <laughs> the comic nature of some of them. However, I also recognize the danger. And I, I think that that's healthy to have these where you, you can start to connect with people who 
can resonate with some of our challenges and, and the absurdity of some of the things that we see. But I do think when we spend too much of our time and place too much of our attention on the poking fun of our students and the, oh, those young whippersnappers, if they, you know, that, that too much focus can really have a negative effect because it's going to be changing how we perceive these students that are a lot mm-hmm. more like us than perhaps we would care to admit. Oh, that, that's a great way to phrase it, too. I, I agree. This is part of the reason that I, that I often say that empathy is the foundation for all good teaching. But mm-hmm. in this particular case, I mean, you're right. Teachers are human beings, and everyone needs an outlet to kind of express the frustration that they have. But I do also feel very strongly that there's a kind of there, there's an, a vulnerability in the, in the teaching-learning interaction that students put themselves in a very vulnerable place, willingly to say, I don't know this. Will you please help me learn that? And that, that that's, that's a kind of, uh, that's a sort of um, move that I, that I, I mean, it's almost sacred, right? That, uh, that they're, they're doing this and that we have to take that and value it uh, very highly. And so by them doing that, uh, by them putting themselves in that kind of vulnerable position to then do anything to dishonor that by by you know criticizing students in public. You see it a lot on social media too. Mm-hmm. Facebook and Twitter people can complain about students, and uh, and to a certain extent, it's venting, but but it can cross the line into I think kind of disparaging the important connection and relationship that makes teaching and learning so successful and it can happen. On the topic of recommendations, Josh, I'm going to give you a minute to think about it. And for mine, I want to share, I've mentioned this in a blog post, but in case anyone missed it, I love the podcast app called Overcast. And Overcast is, there are a lot of podcast catchers out there. And this one I just have found to be incredibly easy to use and also powerful. It's a free one. It's called freemium. So they're wanting us to try it out. And then for $4.99, you can unlock some additional features. I'm just going to mention a couple of things. It has a technology called Smart Speed. I've never seen this in any other podcast app before, but it takes out the silences and shortens the length of the podcast without it sounding as artificial as when we speed it up to time and a half or two times, and then they sound like cartoon characters. It's amazing to listen to because the voices just sound so natural, but you are able to get through a lot more podcasts on your drive. They also have a feature called Voice Boost, where it normalizes the volume so the speaking is loud and clear, but the you don't find the great ebbs and flows for people that haven't invested in the podcast equipment that we have that does that for you on our end of things and great things with playlists. And it's just really clear and easy to use. So it's, as you get to know it more, you can use more of the features, but it's, it's worth a mention. That's the overcast app. And I will put a link to that in the show notes, Josh, how about you? What is your recommendation for the listeners? Well, I have two, I think. Sure. Um, and I had just mentioned this play, but if you love teaching and you've never seen the play Wit by Margaret Edson, I would recommend going out right away and renting the HBO version that came out maybe 10 years ago now with um, with Emma Thompson in the lead. It is amazingly powerful and uh, I think uh, helps you rethink what it means to be a teacher. Uh, and also, I have always found in terms of tips, the faculty focus newsletters that 
that, that comes out frequently. I mean, you can, you can even if you just Google faculty focus, you would find it. But uh, I find I find that that as well as tomorrow's professor out of Stanford has um, wonderful, easy to digest tips that come out on a frequent basis, and and uh, lots of people find that to be a valuable source of of uh, new information about teaching, new approaches, and just in general ways to kind of uh, keep spicing up what, what it is that we do in the classroom. Well, I am looking forward to having you on the show next time already, and <laughs> we haven't even pressed the stop button on this time. Josh, thank you so much for joining me today and taking a risk on a stranger you've never met before. <laughs> I wonder, as we close, would you tell people quick about your book and when it's coming out, and then I already will commit to having you back on the show because it would be great to, to chat, chat with you then. Tell us about your book, and then we'll close. Sure, and I appreciate it, Bonnie. Um, it should be out in 2016, actually, so there's a little bit of time. Mm. Uh, it's, it's based on a lot of what we've been talking about today. It's called How Human Beings Learn, a New Paradigm for Teaching in Higher Education, and really uh, delves into all the areas that we might consider when we think about the biology of learning and why that will help us as teachers. And as a part of it, I'm actually going around and, and interviewing and, and observing the classes of some award-winning teachers. So it's, it's rooted in uh, actual classroom practice, too, which I think uh, is what at least helps me when I, when I read new works on teaching and learning. Oh, that's fantastic. I had no idea it was 2016, so I can't wait that long. We'll have to have you back <laughs> sooner than that. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Bonnie. Thanks for listening to today's Teaching in Higher Ed with our guest, Dr. Josh Eiler. I'd encourage everyone listening, if you haven't already, to subscribe to the weekly newsletter. These are weekly teaching articles and the notes from each podcast that come straight into your email inbox. And also, if you subscribe, you'll receive the free Educational Technology Essentials Guide. Also would appreciate it if you'll tell someone else about the show or consider writing a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks so much for listening and thanks again to Josh Eiler.